Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. At Trinity Grace Church, our mission is to help New Yorkers grow in love by practicing the way of Jesus for the good of our city. If you're interested in Trinity Grace Church Tribeca, check out our website at tgctribeca.com where you can learn more about us and learn about ways that you can help support our church and this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to see and hear what's going on in our community. Thank you for joining us today and welcome grace and peace to you. the Lord my soul. Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants, and he sets the foundation on it. He sets the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains, and they went down into the valleys, to the places you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes, spring, he makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, (laughs) bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests, and the stork has its home in the junipers. The high mountains belong to the wild goats, and the crags are a refuge for the hyrax. He made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forests prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then people go out to their work, to their labor until evening. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. The word of the Lord. So before I offer my reflection on this, I do want to remind us of what we're doing together in the month of January and February. We're basically taking these months to rethink our identity as a church, um, to lay out not only what our mission is uh, and our motives, but also our core values and our distinctives as a community so that we have a sense of where we're going in 2020. 
I began this series with a sense of uh, what is our why? What's our motive? And talked about our why as life. Uh, we talked about our what, our mission as love. And then last week we began exploring our core values, uh, of which there are five. Um, and these five core values are unity, diversity, generosity, curiosity, and creativity. Um, and creativity is, is creatively projected at this moment. Um, we like to keep it weird. Uh, but the, uh, the first two I looked at last week, and if you, you haven't heard any of these uh, messages or missed one, I encourage you to go back to the podcast and give it a listen so that you have a sense of where we're coming from as a community. Um, but today I want to land on generosity and focus on what does, how does this value of generosity play out in our community, how can it play out in our community, and why is it so essential to who we are as a church. And before I do that, I'd like to create just a moment of quiet where we can open our hearts to God and open our hearts to each other and share this moment together with whatever we bring into the room. It could be lots of faith or lots of doubt. Uh, you could come here super joyous or super sorrowful, but just bring your full self to this moment and open your heart to the possibility that God can connect the words from our text and the beauty of generosity to our very lives. So let's take a moment for that. God, give us uh, as a community this morning the gift of uh, a sense of communal awe. Give us a moment of wonder and whimsy where we're drawn up out of our concerns and we're drawn up beyond all the things that we carry that feel heavy to us, and we have a sense of levity, we have a sense of release, we have a sense of inspiration toward a different future. And we pray that in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So this morning, I, I, at the core of this value of generosity is perception. And I'd like to begin by talking about generosity as perception. Um, there is a sort of contest at work in our imaginations. And that contest plays out uh, in a way that has us guessing what is myth and what is real. Like what is just a dream or an idea or a fantasy and what is the essence of reality? Like that choice is before us when it comes to generosity. And what I wanna share this morning is that God created a world of great abundance and if we share, there's enough for all. That's the basic idea of generosity, that God created a world of abundance, and if we share, there's enough for all. But that war between what is myth and what is real basically says, is God a God of abundance? Is the world a world of abundance? Or do we live in a world of scarcity, where there are limited resources and therefore a necessary competition to gain the resources that we need. I think it's the tension that sort of is tearing us apart, not only as individuals, as we feel torn, but also as a society. And perception has everything to do with our practice of generosity. The psalm this morning that we had read, thank you Luke for reading it, is a psalm that reveals a kind of way of seeing, a perception. It's the longest creation poem in all the Bible. It is this beautiful reflection on the creation story from Genesis 1. It's a commentary on it. And in it, we have a sort of survey 
all the things that are teeming with life in this world are named. You've got the heavens and the earth. You have the waters and the springs. You have the streams and the trees and the birds and the goats and the wine and the oil and the bread and the people and the lions. And then verse 23 ends the list. And I'm sorry, for 23 verses, that list goes on. And then in verse 24, you have this beautiful expression of awe and praise and wonder. Verse 27 and 28 are kind of like a table prayer as a result of that awe and wonder. And it says, you give them food in due season, you feed everybody. And then at the very end of the psalm, which we didn't read, you have this picture of God as a great respirator. It says, you give your breath to the world and it lives. And if you ever stop breathing, the world will die. What a beautiful picture. But the psalmist isn't wanting us to worry whether God will stop breathing or not. The psalm is a poetic reflection on the constants of God's support of life. It's, it's the constants of God's activity of, of abundance in this world. Basically, it's telling us a story that, that shoots like an arrow throughout our entire scripture story. And that is that God and God's life force runs loose in the world, untamed, uncontrolled, unmanipulatable. And there's different perceptions that come with it. Think about Genesis 1, our creation, our sort of foundational creation story. In Genesis 1, the perception is that creation is teeming with God's presence, with God's love, with God's life, and scarcity is denied. Over and over, God creates, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good. It's almost an exhausting goodness so that God has to rest in the end so that we can enjoy the goodness. Psalm 104, what we read, the perception there is this buoyancy of creation. Anxiety is rejected outright because of this buoyancy. Later, Psalm 150, or the psalm that Tyler preached at the end of last year, these are psalms that indicate the abandonment to God that's appropriate. It's a fitting when we see the world this way that we really can let ourselves go. We can let go of control. We can let go of the sort of iron grip on the things that give us a sense of false security. That arrow that runs through the story continues through person after person. I love the story of Abraham because Abraham is sort of, uh, he lives in a, a town, he's doing his own thing, and then all of a sudden he has this dream and he has this sense of the creator calling him out into a land that's unknown, taking this massive risk, but his mandate is what captures my imagination. His mandate is blessing. And blessing, according to Walt Brueggemann, I love this definition, is a force of well-being that's active in the world. And faith is the awareness that creation is the gift that keeps on giving. At the core of faith is an abundance mindset. It can see, it can perceive that God is teeming with life, that the creation is bubbling and buoyant, and that if we only see the world that way, we can tap into that abundance. That we don't have to live stringent and guarded and scared. And for 45 chapters in Genesis, that's the dominating theme. Blessing. Teeming life. 
the hand of God on the people of God to bless the world that God made. But in chapter 47, you have this, uh, this other story, this other perception, this other instinct that's introduced, and it's in that moment that the tension really builds. In chapter 47, you have a character called Pharaoh. Pharaoh has a dream. It's a dream of famine. It scares him. It strikes terror in the core of his being. And so what does he do? Well, he does what we all do when we're afraid, when we feel backed into a corner. He ad it starts administrating. He organizes. He controls. And he eventually monopolizes the food supply. Pharaoh basically introduces this principle of scarcity into the story, into the world economy. His motto is essentially, there's not enough. And so, we got to get everything that we can. That is the motto of empire. And it's the motto of ego at the smaller level. There's a story of a, a man named Martin Niemöller. He was a German uh, minister. He was part of the German Lutheran church in the era of Nazi Germany. And he was a hero because he valiantly resisted uh, Hitler in, in a, a number of different ways. But there's this story of where he was invited uh, to a meeting that Hitler was leading, and he was part of a delegation from the German Lutheran, uh, Evangelical Lutheran Church. And as he shows up to this meeting, he stands in the back and watches and listens, and he remains quiet the entire time. Later that evening when he comes home, his wife asks him, so what did you learn today? And he said, quote, I discovered that Herr Hitler is a terribly frightened man, end quote. And that's because Pharaoh, like Hitler after him, believes that there isn't enough good to go around and that what does exist has to be controlled and managed and guarded and protected at all costs. And when that scarcity begins to awaken in our mind, we can become so afraid and we can become quite ruthless. Can you think of a moment in your life when you felt the cold grip of scarcity come over you? The sense of antagonism, the sense of competitiveness that you feel, the sense of shielding yourself and guarding yourself, the aggression that wells up? Yeah, I know this all too well in my own soul. And what Pharaoh does is he has Joseph manage his monopoly. So year after year, as things are looking bad and the famine is setting in, uh, the crops are not coming in like normal. People don't have enough food to eat. So they come to Joseph, and Joseph basically says on behalf of Pharaoh, well, what collateral do you have? And they say, well, we've got our land. And so in an economic transaction, they offer their land for food. The next year, they come back. They don't have their land anymore, but they're still hungry. And they're asked once again, what's your collateral? And so they say, well, we offer our cattle. And the year after that, they have nothing left to offer but themselves. And so, slavery is introduced into our story as a cascade effect from this scarcity mindset the presence of empire, to hoard and to monopolize and to control because at the core we believe there's not enough. There's not enough to go around. 
And so we see this contest emerge in our story. And I love it because the next book of the Bible is the Exodus, and it's all about this showdown. It's just a showdown between these rival perceptions, these different ways of seeing reality. And we're left to ask the question, well, what is true and what is myth? What is real and what is fantasy? And I can tell you today that the reigning paradigm is that generosity and abundance is fantasy. That it's a nice idea, right? We all are somewhat attracted to it, and we would like to be very generous people, but we just know the cold, hard facts. That if we don't take care of ourselves, if we don't manage and manipulate and hustle and hoard, then we will never, ever get what we want. That is the basic and reigning paradigm, I think, of our world. But in the Exodus, this showdown takes place and unfolds. And we are left asking the question, which way will prevail? Which of these two views of the world will win in the end? Pharaoh is uh, obviously in contest with the people who are now in slavery. But irony of ironies, they can't be stopped. Like even in slavery, they continue to multiply and be fruitful. This life underneath Pharaoh's nose continues to bubble forward, producing so much terror and anxiety in him that he orders all the firstborn children to be executed. And I love this moment. Even in slavery, life is teeming, and when Pharaoh tries to cut it off, two midwives, they defy the empire. They defy scarcity. They refuse to consent, and they are named. You have Shipra, and you have Pua, resisting an unnamed Pharaoh. They're the named defiers of scarcity and the violence that flows from it. And Pharaoh, he just does what ego and empire know to do. They double down on their power. They double down out of fear and out of that sense of scarcity. And so what's he do? Exasperated, he sort of wields all his anger, all his wrath, all his force on the people until he eventually goes, I don't know what to do with you. I can't get rid of you. I can't stop you. So he calls Moses and Aaron, the leader of the people, into a conference, and he basically says, take your people and leave. Take your herds, take your cattle, and get out of here. And then, in the irony of ironies, this great king, this great pharaoh, the one who's at the center of the power of empire, rooted in scarcity, asks for blessing. Bless me before you go. Which is incredible. The story we see as these rival perceptions come together is one winning out over the other and the one that on the surface looks like it has all the power begging for help. The powers of scarcity admit to this little community of abundance. It's clear that you have the wave of the future. It's clear that before you leave, you need to lay your powerful hands on me so that I can get some of the energy that you possess. And that's because the power of the future isn't in powerful hands. It's in the hands of those who are driven by abundance and are not curbed into obedience and subservience and fearful living through the scarcity mindset. 
after the people are freed from that sort of environment, they go into the wilderness and they start wandering. And listen, man, they, they were slaves in Egypt, but they had Egypt in them, right? You, you hear that. I always tell people I came from like a big church background and you could take the person out of the big, but you can't take the big out of the, it's like I have to fight these instincts all the time. I'm like, why are there not intelligent lights in here all the time? Um, <clears throat> not, not actually true, but. You can't take Egypt out of these people very easily. It, they, don't, they, don't, it, it, they don't escape this vision of scarcity like that. Right? They have to be molded. They have to be shaped. They have to be formed in this way of abundance and generosity for this threat of blessing to find its through line. And what do they do? Well, fear, complaint sort of settles in on the community. Grumbling begins to happen. But... God's love comes trickling down, and it comes in the form of bread. And literally what they say when they experience this bread, this surprise, this gift, this embarrassing presence of abundance in the face of their scarcity, they say, manhu, which in Hebrew means, what is it? And in that moment, the word manna is born. Bread was never before a free gift that couldn't be controlled, that couldn't be predicted, that couldn't be banked and invested and hoarded. But here, the community of God comes in touch with something that's given, something that's real, something that's provided, which is a generous gift of God. And there's wonder. There is miracle. There is an embarrassing, sort of irrational thing happening in their midst. God's abundance is transcending the market. And three things happen. Eventually, they realize everyone has enough, and yet they still are tempted to hoard, just like us. I think we all probably, at some level, as we've engaged our Christian tradition, or if you're maybe not part of the Christian tradition, you've probably engaged some spirituality or some religious tradition that's taught you generosity's good. And we flirt with it, and we're attracted to it, and yet we're still tempted to hoard. Two, they realize when this provision of God is banked and invested and hoarded and controlled, it just turns sour and it rots. That's what happens to the manna. Some of them are like, whoa, this is great. Let's, uh, let's put this aside for tomorrow. And it just rots. Which is the story's way of saying there's enough and there always will be enough. You don't have to control it. You don't have to hoard it. You don't have to protect yourself. You can open yourself to God's good world and you can live freely. There's an interesting little note in the story that says no one had too much and no one had too little. Right? There wasn't like perfect parity necessarily, but no one had too much and no one had too little. Third, Sabbath is introduced. The same Sabbath of God, that exhausting goodness that leads to rest so we can enjoy this good stuff, is reintroduced into the community. And Moses says, listen, I know you haven't known a day of rest in your slavery existence. I know that Pharaoh never took a day off, but we will rest. We will stop, 
we will pause, we will recognize with our lives that life isn't always a hustle, life isn't always exhaustion and output and production, life is also beauty and enjoyment and poetry and savoring the marrow of the goodness of life. And so we will pause and we will say, we are not in control of this, our good God who created this good world is in control of this. And we can stop the wheels spinning and we can become human again. I love this idea because Sabbath is basically saying we can slow down because we believe there's always enough. And when you find yourself not able to slow down, it's usually an indicator that you don't believe there's enough. Barbara Brown Taylor says this, quote, No one longs for what she or he already has. And yet the accumulated insight of those wise about the spiritual life suggests that the reason so many of us cannot see the red X that marks the spot is because we're standing on it. The treasure we seek requires no lengthy expedition, no expensive equipment, no superior aptitude or special company. All we lack is the willingness to imagine that we have already everything we need and that the only thing missing is our consent to be where we are. End quote. And what this brings up to us as a church as we consider generosity is that the story we live matters. Our sense of where we come from and where we're going really does impact our present tense. And our story tells us that we originated in this magnificent, sort of inexplicable love of God. The God who loves the world with his generous being. And in our baptism, as we do baptism together, we celebrate and declare that we are each miraculously loved into existence. When we dedicated little Levi last week, we were saying, in essence, Levi was loved into existence, and we embrace him as a community of love. And our story of abundance says that in the end, our lives will end in God somehow. And so our well-being, our sense of blessing, can never be taken from us. We think of St. Paul's words, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not angel or principality, not heaven or hell. No created thing can separate us from the love of God. Our story, our sense of where we come from and where we're going, it creates a new kind of present. And that's why generosity for us is tied to story. That's why these gatherings are important. Because here, we come and we taste, we bump up against, we brush up against a a different way to see, an alternative way to be. But this is challenging because we live in a world that's never enough. We are always looking at the Bible with one glance, and then we're looking at the market with our other, or our bank account, our P&L sheet. On a good day, we engage the Bible meaningfully, but every day, we are bombarded with hundreds and hundreds of these little compressed stories that we call advertisements. And these stories often win our imaginations. And so, as a church, our value of generosity creates a mandate. We live in this wealthiest nation at a time 
where we're also the, the world's biggest coveters. We never feel like we have enough. Listen, if we make more than $33,000 a year, we're in the 1% globally. Now, I don't feel that, and you don't feel that, because where do we compare? We compare to the side and we compare up. So how will we come in touch with reality? Like who's really living reality and who's living fantasy here? People look at us from the outside, other parts of the world, like we are filthy rich. And whether we're liberal or we're conservative, we have to confess as people who follow Jesus that the central problem of our lives is that we're torn apart by the conflict between these two things. Our attraction to the good news of God's abundance on the one hand and our belief in scarcity, which trends toward greed and meanness and our being unneighborly. Our lives are spent trying to sort out that tension. And this is where the idea of the church's calling is powerful. We're called to live, in the words of Rowan Williams, at an angle. Like there is a stream, there is a flow in this world, there is a current of consumerism that we all get swept in without even trying, and the church is meant to live at an angle to that, cutting against the grain of the flow of the culture in which we live. And that's why generosity is a core value of our community. We can't claim glib moral superiority, but we have to insist that we march to the beat of a different drum. And we have to recognize that there's this sense in our community of a final and an insurpassable authority when we look at the living and the dying of Jesus. And that's why this table is so important, because every week we come to this table and we remember the living and the dying of Jesus, of Nazareth. Now, authority is... My best definition of authority is a life lived with total integrity. Like when you take what you love and believe and value and you put it into practice, you have a clout. You have a weight. You have a gravitas. The people in my life I look to with authority are people who walk the talk. And what we as a community say is we looked at the living and dying of Jesus and we say, no one ever walked the talk like this person. Here we see supremely the value of love lived out. Here we see supremely the, the vision of abundance played out in relationships. Here in this life and in this death, we see a faithfulness to reality as we understand it and a resistance to the fantasy of Pharaoh and of Hitler and of every one of our egos. And so that's the music we tune into with this table. It's the music that we tune into when we open up these words of Scripture and we consider them afresh. Priya Parker wrote a book called The Art of Gathering, and she says, when gatherings are done right, we get a sense that another world's possible. And it stays with us, and it does work on us. And that's why we gather and we rehearse these stories over and over and over again. Clumsily, yes. Imperfectly, yes, for sure. But we do it resolutely, trusting that we, like the people of Israel, can be formed and shaped into this way of generosity. And so this morning, I want us to consider the great stories and the legacy of our church and where we can go. 
I remember when we first started meeting, we gathered a few people out on the pier in Tribeca. We started praying for our neighborhood, for each other. That eventually moved into a, a vision meeting with about 35 people. And those 35 people spoke, they gave language to the possibility of a new church downtown. And it was a beautiful night, a powerful night. We decided to start meeting on a regular basis. That community grew from 35 to almost 100 people crammed into little apartments downtown. And at the end of that period, we had a sense like, okay, it's time to go public now. Like we're ready to start public gatherings. And right at that moment, we were trying to find space. And I had, you know, like this project was a project that I found funding for. I invested my own money in it. We, we raised money from elsewhere, and we, we kind of like got this thing going, um, and the community hadn't yet fully embraced the, the church or the project financially. So we were at this inter interesting intersection where we needed to go public, we needed to start creating programs and having space to meet, and yet the, the sort of outside funding was staggering down and the inside funding was supposed to be, you know, ramping up, right? Um, and we were at a crossroads because we were looking for a space, someone recommended uh, that we talk to a real estate agent. And when we told the real estate agent what we were looking for, they sort of laughed and said, that, that doesn't exist. Like, what you're looking for doesn't ex exist in the neighborhood. And then the next day, he called us right back and he said, something just came up, you should come and take a look at it. I don't think it'll be on the market very long. Which is what everybody says, right? But, scarcity. <laughs> um, so we, we, we show up to the, the, the space, and we're kind of in awe. We had like, I don't know, maybe five or six people show up there with us. And we were like, wow, this is, this is like a church hall. This would work perfectly. We could have our office. We could have room for our kids. We could do a co-working space. We could have events and art galleries and, and meet here for worship. It was beautiful. It was an old mansion in Tribeca. And then they told us the cost. <laughs> and it was way more than we were budgeting. And so our community was a little bit, I think, down by that. But uh, someone in our core group stood up and said, I think we should pray and fast about this. Let's just pray and let's seek God and let's see what happens. And so we committed to do it that week. On Wednesday, I get a phone call from a person I had met a couple of years earlier in Canada. And this person just says, hey, uh, so I hear that you're looking for a new space. He had added himself to our newsletter. So if anyone wants to be added to our, our newsletter. He's like, I hear you're looking for a new space. Tell me about the space. So I tell him about it. He says, that sounds great. How do you feel about it? And I was like, it's a big risk. It's like a huge financial response, like commitment on the front end of a community that we're not exactly sure, like, is this going to work? And there was this long pregnant pause, and he goes, okay, I'm in. We had decided we needed to raise like an extra 150000 to supplement our budget for the cost of the space over three years. And he goes, I'm in. I'll do half if you can find the other half. So in just one moment, $75,000 committed like that. And we came back the next Sunday. We told the core group. And the core group came together and said, we'll spot the rest. And in that moment, we had a space. Our story was begun by a sense of the threat of scarcity, a sort of defiance in the face of that scarcity, an open heart, and then the provision of God. 
people always ask me, well, how much should I be giving? How much should I be generous? And, you know, there's like, there's different streams in the Christian tradition, right? Like there's the stream that says 10% on the gross, no questions asked. And God bless those of you in our community. And we've had people like that in our community. They come here and they're like, all right, sign me up. And you can tell because like the, the, the number is always this really weird number. It's like exactly, it's, you know they were like 10% on a top number. And I love that. There's so much faith and wonder in that. There's a sense of priority. There's a sense of commitment to generosity first above anything else. We've had people who said 10% is not enough. Like, I, I have an abundance. My cup runneth over, so to speak. And I know people in this community who push themselves year after year to give more and more and more. We have friends who give now 80% of their, of their uh, gains or their income in the year, and they live on 20%. And they started 20 years ago with you know, giving 20%, living on 80%. And so 10% has been sort of a guidepost in our tradition for a long time, but a lot of people go more than that. And frankly, a lot of us should go more than that. But some of you, you're like, I'm not even close to that. And we've had stories of people in our church who are like, I don't give as much as I want to give. I, I want to give more. And I'm not just talking to the church folks. I'm talking like period. People who say, I want to give more than I'm giving now, but I'm strapped. And isn't it funny how a lot of us make more than we ever thought we'd make, and yet we still feel strapped. More money doesn't always mean more generosity. In fact, we live in the most prosperous, prosperous, is that how you say it? Uh, we live in the most prosperous country, perhaps of all time, and yet our generosity is on the decline. It's actually extraordinarily low. And so what do we do with that? What do we do with that paradox? I know people who've gotten financial counseling who said, we just need some help because we know the money's there. We need to try to trim here so we can lean into the joy of giving. Harvard uh, just push, pushed out a study that said that giving, it, uh, giving factors into our happiness quotient at a disproportionate rate. So does our commute, by the way. So <laughs> you want to change your happiness, lean into giving, and shorten your commute. Anyways. But people go, I, I want to be happier. I want to be more free with my money. You know, the early church was so inspired by it. They were actually very uh, sort of, they had, they had guardrails on things like, their sexuality, they guarded the relationships of their life so they didn't do violence to those relationships, but they were promiscuous with their money. They shared. They sent it around. They passed it around. They, they remembered the story of Jesus when it was like, hey, everybody's hungry. We have these limited resources, but if we share, there's going to be enough. And we have people in our church who go, I know if I share more, it will mean, an, it will mean provision for others. It would mean provision for the things we care about and we love, for the missions that we believe in. And so they get, they, they get counsel, and they tweak, and then they, they start raising year over year, just a little bit, here and there. I remember in the early days of our church, before we had like a benevolence fund, we had a family that was in need, financial need, and somebody came into the office that week, plopped down $1,000 on the desk, and said, my cup runneth over and walked out. And that family had their need met. 
I tell you these stories because there is a whimsy to generosity. It's uncontrollable. It's unpredictable. It is spontaneous, and it's planned. And so the, the choice is always cutting us at the core. Who will you choose? Will you choose the way of life and generosity and abundance, or will you choose the way of death and scarcity and self-protection, which is in the end is bitter to the core? You don't take the stuff with you anyways. And so what we do as a community is we, we seek to lean into and grow in our generosity. Now, what can that look like for you? You know, it, little tweaks matter, and they help us. They help us connect with reality. Now, some of you are here today, and you know what? You don't really give it all to anything. And maybe the next step for you looks like just say, I'm going to give $5 every week to something, and you're going to create a momentum in your life. Now, some of you are here today, and you give maybe a regular amount, but it's like it's this fixed thing in your mind. Like, I give that, it's compartmentalized, and then it's off the radar for the rest of the year, and you think, I've done my part. And so you're not open to the world around you. You're not open to the needs around you. You're not open to the relationships around you. And therefore, you're kind of short-circuiting the flow of God's life and abundance in the world. To be a people of blessing and to be a people of abundance is to say, I'm open and I see my connection to everything and everyone. And I'm willing to let the life of God flow through me to the needs of my life. That's the vision. And the invitation this morning is, how can you lean into that this morning? Now, from a church perspective, I could be like, well, you could become a builder, or you could start tithing or start moving toward tithing. Or if you have enough, you should give more than a tithe. But honestly, I trust the work of God's Spirit in your life. We're, we're a no-judgment zone. You're not going to get from me frowns or furrowed brows if you give less than 10%. And you're also not going to get this huge pat on the back, or hopefully not on the butt. That, though, that is a real problem these days. Um, like, what we do is we just trust that God's Spirit is moving us to let the life of God flow and that everything will be taken care of. You know, our trustees got together and they set the budget cap for this next year, and we set it 11% higher, so 925000 And immediately, as soon as that was set, something happened in my, mind, in my heart. I was like, okay. Like pressure. It's like, what are we going to do? How are we going to account for that growth? You know, where's that going to come from? And then immediately, I had to force myself to choose the abundance mentality, to choose that there is enough if we're willing to share. If we're all willing to move a little bit, if we're all willing to give a little more, if we're willing to let this community grow, if we're willing to do what we need to do to share, there is plenty. There's more than enough. In fact, if any of us, if every one of us leaned seriously into generosity and channeled some of that toward the church, our budget could double easily. Like, we are really underperforming in that sense. But we also live with the reality of our lives and the incremental nature of our change. And so we have patience. And we know and trust that God will provide and God will keep moving us forward. And maybe, who knows, maybe there'll be a precipice where we say, we look out over and we say, all right, it's time for everybody to, like, let's go in. We've got something we're going to go after, and we're going to double or we're going to triple. We'll do something crazy. I don't know. i got trustees looking at me now like, what are you talking about right now? But all I'm saying now is we're trying to grow 11%. And I want you to consider, how can you play a part in that? How can you play your part? 
And beyond the church, what can you do? How can you be open to your neighbor? So we sit with that question, and we hope that as we come to this table, we'll be stirred by the living and dying of Jesus, the one who was rich and became poor, that so by his poverty we might become rich.